Hi, I'm Aubrey. Thanks so much for joining us today on the podcast for Harrisonburg Nazarene Church. Please subscribe for updates and new episodes to this podcast. Join us each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. on Facebook Live. Be sure to like or follow our page while you're there. We would also like to invite you to some events happening at our church Easter weekend. Our Good Friday service will be at 7 p.m. Our Easter egg hunt will be Saturday 2 to 4 p.m. And in addition to our regular Sunday services, we will also have a 7.30 a.m. service. Brian uh, is going to come here in just a moment. And as he does, uh, Brian Charette, you you may know, he's uh, part of our church, been a part of our church for a long time, and uh, from time to time will come and help us share the word. But one other thing that Brian does that's really significant in our men's retreats is for several years now, he's kind of helped speak and help us get our mind around the theme and the topic and brainstorm. And so he was one of the speakers this year, but I wanted to celebrate Brian. And truthfully, I meant to bring this on retreat and I forgot. It's okay. And I know you would rather not receive any Correct. applause in front yeah, of people. That's right. But this is the Lord's so will. So why don't we just skip past right, it? We're not going to skip it. I have a little John gift for you. John 12 is right, what it will right, be this right. morning. So we have a little gift. Um, we've joked for a few years now, we call Brian our rabbi when we get down a men's retreat because he just helps lead us and guide us and he has such wisdom. And so you can open up this little gift we have for you today. It's, uh, it's a prayer shawl. It's a prayer shawl. Thanks. Isn't that cool? You have been and are our rabbi. And so this morning, Brian's going to share. Uh, I'd ask that he would come. He's going to help share the overflow a little bit of our topic this weekend, but really lead us in this focus on our Palm Sunday. So uh, would you give thanks again for Brian this morning? Bless you. Bless you. Uh, before I begin the message, I, I want to pray uh, for two groups of people. Uh, they were clear in my prayer time this morning crystal clear, the Lord was saying, I want special prayer for two groups of people, and so that's where I'm going to start. One is uh, those of you who are dealing with a physical illness. Uh, You need healing. You either know what's wrong with you, um, and you want it healed, or you don't know what's wrong with you, but you know something's wrong, and you're worried about that. So that's the first group of people that we're going to pray for this morning. And then the second group is those of you who, if you were honest, would say, you have a broken heart right now. I didn't get any more information than that, so I can't explain it. I just, if you would say, I have a broken heart, we're going to pray for you. So what I'd like to do now is um, I'm going to have you close your eyes and bow your heads, and then if you fit in either of those two groups, you come this morning needing a physical touch or healing, or you would say you have a broken heart and you need emotional um, restoration, Uh, eyes closed, head bowed. Raise your hands if you fit in either of those two categories. Okay, thanks for that. You can put them down. We're going to pray. Lord, you're here. We know you're here because you promised you would be. And so this is a perfect time to look to your face and ask you to consider these precious ones who just raised their hands. I pray in the name of Jesus for healing. You bore our sicknesses and diseases on the cross so that we would have the privilege and the hope to ask you for a physical touch. So that's what we do this morning, Lord. For all who raise their hands for healing touch, I pray for it and ask it in the name of Jesus and by the authority of the cross, Lord. By your Holy Spirit, even now begin a healing work for those who raise their hand. And Lord, I pray for those who would say that their heart is broken right now for whatever reason. Your heart was broken. 
You know what that's like. And so, Lord, I pray a tender ministry to those who consider themselves to have a broken heart this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would work so wonderfully and so powerfully that sometime today they would be thinking, you know, I should be hurting more than I am. Uh, But I'm not. I shouldn't have the peace I have, but I do. I just ask you, Lord, out of respect for you and love for these folks, that you would touch those this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I'd like to really share two things this morning. Uh, One, I'd like to give you a glimpse of what we talked about in men's retreat, um, and then also focus on today, uh, Palm Sunday, and how those two things relate at a very important position. So do turn in, you, if you would, to John 12. We're going to be in verse 9. John 12, verse 9. I actually have a Palm Sunday memory. Now, for those of you who know me, that might be surprising because I wasn't, I wasn't raised in the church. I, uh, I've told you before, my family, uh, we were nominal Catholics. Neither of my parents knew the Lord, cared about the Lord. Um, but we were sort of ritualistic Catholics. I'm from Worcester, Massachusetts, and there's a heavy Roman Catholic presence. And so my grandmother uh, would lean on my parents to have us show up at church every once in a while. And one of those, you know, was the special occasions. And so Palm Sunday was one of them. And I do have a, a memory, and my mother has reminded me of it. Uh, I was about 10 years old, and we went to church on Palm Sunday. And I had no idea why there were pieces of trees all over the church. I, Never experienced anything like that. Was that a snack? Were we all going to get together and make hats for the poor? I had no idea what these palms were for. And my mother explained it to me, and the way she explained it would characterize the way I felt about church for many years after that. You know, I asked her, what are these for? And her answer was, oh, those are just decoration. And you know, for... A lot of people, that's exactly what their religion is to them. It's a decoration. And Passion Week is about Jesus obliterating that notion. And we're going to be introduced to that process this morning and, of course, have it fulfilled next week. So John 12, 9, Jesus is uh, around Jerusalem to start Passion Week He's leaving Bethany. He's heading to Jerusalem. This is the final week of his life on earth. John 12, 9. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. So people are flooding into Jerusalem for Passover week, and we're introduced to these two murder plots. Now, that's not unusual for Jesus to be surrounded by tension. I mean, remember, there was a price on his head when he was just a few weeks old. Herod wanted him. Remember, they had to go to Egypt, and the wise men had to avoid coming in contact with Herod. So there was a price on his head when he was a baby. So it's not really surprising But now it's intensifying. Now it's Passion Week, and that's leaking out onto other people. So there's a plot to kill Jesus, a plot to kill Lazarus. So this Passion Week, we have 
this sense of crowds and chaos and curses. And into this context, this stuff happens. John 12, 12. The next day, the great crowd, and specifically, it was a pretty significant crowd. Uh, historians estimate there's about 125,000 people who would have been in Jerusalem in just a few days. And Jerusalem was only populated by about 75,000. So it was a swamp of people. It would be like, I don't know, think of Harrisonburg, Rockingham County. It would be like having 10 JMU graduations in one day. What kind of, and I work at JMU, so I'm authorized to speak of graduation. Show you my notarized letter. But it would be like that. What would that be like in terms of the crowd? The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the King of Israel! This is what's often referred to as the triumphal entry. It was big and loud and boisterous. We might call it today a stadium event. And Jesus was the rock star in the middle. They saw him as conquering king. In fact, the word Hosanna is from a word that means save us, O king, or our king has come to save us. But we're going to learn they really didn't understand. What I'd like to do at this point is freeze it there, because I'd like to look at two events simultaneously this morning. So I want you to keep the triumphal entry in your mind, but we're going to go someplace else. We're going to skip a few hours ahead, maybe a page ahead in your Bible, to something Jesus did that I know he would say was more important, more powerful, and had a greater impact on the future of the world than that big, loud, noisy entrance. He did something that if you had been there, you likely would have been floored by it, just as his disciples were. So keep where you are in John 12, 13. You may not even have to flip a page. And go to John 13, 1. John 13, 1. So we have the triumphal entry sort of holding, and now we're going to go a little bit ahead. John 13, 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil... The devil. This seems, this seems weird. We're in the middle of this flowing, lilting, peaceful narrative about dinner and about the Lord's love and how he loved them to the end, and we get this stark introduction about the devil. Verse 2, the evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Again, we have this tension, we have this, this war going on under the surface through all these events that happen. Jesus knows it and he sees it. He knows everything that will happen will be in fulfillment of prophecy that's thousands of years old and everything that will happen will foretell into the future and impact his disciples as far ahead in the future as 2019. John 13, 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power 
and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So, stop there. That word so is used in such a way that whatever happens next is a reflection or a result of what you just read. So the so is there because whatever's coming after it, and of course you know it's coming after it, you can just look down and read, but whatever's coming after it is a direct implication of the fact that all things had been put under Jesus' power, that he had come from God and was returning to God. John is very careful to give us that information. Whatever is about to happen next is a result of what Jesus knew about who he was and how he'd been empowered on earth. So let's see what comes next. He got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Small group of friends, quiet room, and in a very small, simple gesture, he rocks their world. Rabbis didn't wash feet. It just didn't happen. This is a tender moment where Jesus is stooping down low at the feet of these men and getting the mud and crud from their feet on his hands. This is, this is the opposite of the triumphal entry. That's why I want us to think about both things at once. What we're seeing in this room is the opposite of the triumphal entry. It is not Jesus as conquering king and ruler. It's Jesus as servant. So we've got the both scenes in play. We have the sounds and screams of support in the street, and we have the quiet sound of water in a basin and the shocked expressions of the people who loved him. Back to the triumphal entry, John 12, verse 14. Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. This Jesus parade concludes with him riding on this prophesied donkey, and they did not understand. It didn't fit. Let's go back to the upper room one more time. John 13, 6. John 13, 6. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you will never wash my feet. And they didn't understand, and it didn't fit. Peter's thinking, I can't even wrap my arms around the idea of you, my Lord, washing my feet. See, Peter, Peter is operating from a triumphal entry perspective. He's in the wrong place for that response. He's still thinking out in the streets. And Jesus is saying, look, 
what you saw out on the street is not what I'm teaching you. This raucous celebration of power and position, that is not what I'm teaching you as I head to my death. I'm teaching you something else. Now, I want to say this carefully and unpack it carefully because I don't want you to misunderstand me. The triumphal entry wasn't real. Now, stay with me. Of course it happened. The triumphal entry occurred. It was a historical fact. Jesus did enter into the city. He did ride on a donkey, and there were thousands and palm fronds and coats put before. That happened. That's not what I'm saying. But this is one of those examples, if you remember your English classes, this is one of your examples of dramatic irony. This is when we as readers of the story know important information that the people in the story don't have. We know they misunderstand who he is. We know that in just a few days, they will turn on him viciously. We know that the crowd in the street loving him now will be hating him soon. We read that story, and the reason I say it's not real is because we know the parade is a charade. Spurgeon, who I love, said, You must not imagine that all those who strewed the branches in the way and cried Hosanna cared about Christ as a spiritual prince. No, they thought he was to be a temporal deliverer. And when they found out afterwards that they were mistaken, they hated him just as much as they had loved him. And crucify him, crucify him, was as loud and vehement a cry as, Hosanna! Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Our Savior only permitted their mistaken enthusiasm for his Father's wise ends and purposes. The triumphal entry was a mischaracterization of who Jesus was. He was not a conquering king to overcome Rome. He was a foot washer to conquer sin and death once and for all. John 13, 8. No, said Peter, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Okay then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. I'm skipping to verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? Now, when you're reading your scripture and you see questions like that, whether rhetorical or otherwise, do you understand, do you see, don't you see? You can assume that that question is for you as you read. So you can assume that Jesus is turning out into history, looking at us and asking us, do we understand what we just learned? Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked them? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. The triumphal entry was not the example. The washing of the feet was the example. The leader serves. 
That was our primary focus at the men's retreat. The, the focus was the call to lead. And the idea behind that is that all men who follow Jesus are called to be leaders. No matter their personality, no matter their inclinations, no matter their perspectives, no matter their skill, they're called to be leaders. And of course, it, I hope it's obvious that that doesn't just apply to men. We had a men's retreat, and so we spoke to men, but now welcome women to the same call. Pastor Billy taught us really powerfully on Thursday night about this idea of the servant leader. And he was teaching from Philippians 2, which says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. The leadership Jesus taught is not triumphal entry leadership. It is not command and control leadership. It is not barking orders from a hilltop. It is not leaping tall buildings at a single bound. This thing called servant leadership is quieter. It is moment by moment. In the silent decisions that you make to sacrifice yourself for the benefit of others. That's really what it is. Servant leadership is influencing someone else by serving them. Some people are often surprised when I talk about how I, I started learning about leadership. I, I've been studying leadership a long time now, um, over 20 years, and it's what I teach uh, at JMU. And I've been passionate about it for a long time, not for its own sake, but because for me, it's the way I'm going to make an impact for Christ on the earth while I'm here. And I learned it. People were somehow surprised. I originally learned about this when I was in the Marine Corps. I think people think that in the military, it's all command and control. And I guess there's some of that if you're in a foxhole somewhere. But the leadership I started to learn in the Marine Corps was this kind, this servant. I have a vivid memory when I was in boot camp. I went to boot camp on Paris Island. And Paris Island is one of those places where it's all that's cracked up to be and more. And early in my time at boot camp, I got a Dear John letter. And in case you were born after 1945, a Dear John letter is when the girl writes a letter to the man and he's at war or overseas or wherever and breaks up with him. Now, I was not at war overseas. I was in South Carolina. But nonetheless, I'm sitting on my footlocker one evening and I open the letter and I think it's a love letter. It is not. It is, let's just be friends. And my heart broke. And there wasn't a thing I could do about it. I was at boot camp. You don't, you don't get a Uber back to the Shenandoah Valley. You can't, I couldn't even call her because we didn't get a phone call until week 10 or something. So here it was on my lap, and I'm trying to hold it together because there are a lot of things that are okay to do on Paris Island Crying is not one of them. And so I'm at my footlocker, and I'm at the end of this long squad bay. There's 80 guys in it. And I'm at the senior drill instructor's end, 
And he's sitting in his office and has a big window so he can see out into the squad bay, and he calls my name. And that was usually never good. So I thought, oh, I do not want to do push-ups right now. But he called my name, so I, I ran up to his office and I pounded on the door and said, sir, the recruit reporting to the senior drill instructor is ordered, sir, which is what you were supposed to do. And he called me into his office and I was standing at attention in front of his desk and I realized I still had that letter in my hand. So I'm standing at attention trying to hold it together and his name is Staff Sergeant Zink, wonderful man that I knew later. Uh, stereotypical drill instructor, you know, six one or two, chiseled, red crew cut, and he gets out from behind his desk and he walks past me and he puts his hand on my shoulder and he doesn't say anything, he just walks out and closes the door behind him. And it took me a beat to fit, what's happened, what just happened? And I realized he was giving me the only 10 minutes of privacy that I would have in 10 weeks of boot camp. And I looked at the letter and I sobbed. I just started crying. I just started grieving. Now, after I told this story at men's retreat, a bunch of men came up to me and said, we don't believe that story. We think you're making it up because what woman would pass up? The... <laughs> and they, they did make a good point. N nonetheless, if, of course, if you fast forward, that's the greatest letter I ever got. Thank God for that letter. That is the greatest letter I ever got. Okay, so I'm standing at attention at his desk and I'm sobbing and crying. And he must have waited till he heard silence because when I had collected myself, he came back in, he put his hand on my shoulder, sat at his desk, didn't say a word, I went back to my footlocker. And I thought, this is a thing. What happened to me is something. And that changed me. I mean, obviously, I remember it vividly to this day. It impacted my life. It certainly made me a better Marine, a better recruit. I would have done anything for that guy because of a moment. That really was what I learned. I, several uh, months later, I was at infantry training in Northern California, and I spent what was the coldest night of my life. Now, I'm from Massachusetts, so I've had some cold nights. But this night in California was the coldest night in my life. And we were in a group of about 20 men. And we were going to, and I learned later it was just a toughening exercise. We didn't have any coats or gloves or hats. We just had our camis on and they were thin. And it was just one of those things that was meant to toughen us up. And so we were going to spend the night sleeping in a dry creek bed in this mountainside in Northern California. And it was cold. And I remember that night we all lined up, about 20 of us, in this creek bed sleeping next to each other. And our commander was this young lieutenant, and he was from, I think he was from Boston College. And he spent the night, the whole night, walking a post around us. He just kept circling us all night long. And I remember the feeling I got, because I didn't get any sleep, because have I mentioned it was cold? Nobody was sleeping. But I remember looking forward to the sound of his boots passing my head. He would make this circle around us, and I would hear his boots coming, and they would get louder, and then they'd be right near my head, and then they'd pass me. And I remember the comfort it was to hear those boots at my head, and he would walk around literally all night long. And I remember thinking, 
this is something. This idea about valuing others first, this idea about serving others, this is a thing. And then, of course, I learned that it's a Jesus thing. It was his idea. It was his start. This servant leadership stuff happens in a moment, in the quiet. This is not, this is not a test of my leadership. I, I love to be able to preach and teach, and this is a great privilege, and I love you guys, and you're always so gracious, but this is not a test of leadership. For me, the next test of leadership is the moment when Pam or the girls need an encouraging word. What will I do in that moment? The next moment I'm faced with temptation. Do I fall to it or do I stand strong? That will test my leadership. The next moment I'm having a conversation with someone who can't do a thing for me. That'll test my leadership. The next time I have an opportunity to talk to someone about Jesus, that will decide my leadership. That's what this leadership is. It's quiet and it's in a moment and it's small, but it'll change the world. Jesus, in a moment has those dirty feet in that water and he is washing their feet and he is removing the crud from them and in a few days he will do something even greater to remove the crud from their souls, from our souls, forever. I told the story of a young man at Men's Retreat named Jonathan Montañez and I want to talk to you about him again I'm going to show you a video clip, and this young godly man is in it, but he doesn't come in till the end. He does something at the end of the video. He makes, he makes a decision in a moment that I think is a wonderful picture of what it's like to serve. And I know you guys get tired of me. It's little things. Coach Peter Morales of the Coronado High School Thunderbirds in El Paso, Texas, makes no qualms about it. Okay. He has a favorite on this team. Mitchell, I need you. I need you to help me out with my coaching tips, Mitchell. Team manager Mitchell Marcus has a developmental disability. One, two, three, four. But he far surpasses everyone here when it comes to love of the game. He's just an amazing person that our basketball team loves being around. Yay! Mitchell's mom, Amy, says he's always been that way. Mitchell always had a basketball. That was always what he wanted for his birthday. And because basketball is that important to him, on the last game of the regular season, the coach told Mitchell to suit up. What was it like to put on the uniform? I was very happy. I bet you were. Just wearing a jersey was enough for Mitchell. But what he didn't know, what no one knew at the time, was that the coach planned to play him. At the end, no matter what the score. You were prepared to lose that game. For his moment, yes. For his moment in time, yes. And so, with a minute and a half left, Coronado leading, but only by 10, Coach Morales put in his manager. And just started hearing Mitchell, Mitchell. But here's where the fairy tale fell apart. Although his teammates did everything they could to get Mitchell a basket, each time they passed him the ball, he either missed the shot, or like on their last possession, booted it out of bounds turning the ball over to the other team with just seconds left. He wasn't going to be able to score. But I was hoping that he was happy that he was just put in the game. Could you have ever imagined what happened next? No, I did. I could not. Not at all. What happened next happened on the inbound. The guy with the ball there is a senior at Franklin High School. 
Number 22, Jonathan Montanez. Uh, I just, I was raised to treat others how you want to be treated. Just thought Mitchell deserved his chance, deserves his opportunity. I think I'll cry about it for the rest of my life. What Jonathan did was yell out Mitchell's name, then threw the ball right to it, right there. One of the most memorable turnovers of all time. It wasn't the game-winning shot. When the buzzer sounded, Coronado had 15 more points than Franklin. But Jonathan's assist and Mitchell's basket did change the outcome decidedly. Now there's a moment. Son, I want you to pass the ball to the opposing team. Oh Lord, that, that can't be right. No, I, I want you to do it. Change a life in a moment. I was really, I didn't want the story to end there. I, I was interested in this young man, Jonathan Montanez. So I tracked him down. Interestingly, the chancellor at Texas Tech, notably, saw that clip and said, that's the kind of leader we need at Texas Tech, and gave him a scholarship. And apparently Jonathan's been a leader since he was a little, little boy. And he was involved in all kinds, and I know you can't read that, but my point is, this young man of God is a leader. And he's not a leader because he's showy. He's a leader because he serves. And he's a good inspiration to me. I want to read the last sentence, the last paragraph in closing, because I know you can't see it. That's him, of course. He says, I feel like people have looked up to me and things like that, he allowed. But I just keep it humble, try not to stick out my chest. My parents raised me to want to be a great man. That's servant leadership. That's Jesus' leadership. Pastor Adrian. It's a beautiful reminder. Reminded as Brian shared in John 13, as Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he says these words, Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I think that's kind of how the Lord feels about us when it comes to servant leadership. Now that you've seen my model, now that you've seen my way of what it means to serve, you'll be blessed if you do it. What a beautiful reminder for us as we enter into this holy week that we serve a God. We serve a God who made himself low, made himself nothing. Why? For you and for me. What a model for us. Thanks, Brian, for sharing. If you'd stand now, we're going to prepare to go. This is an incredible week for us as believers as we journey towards Resurrection Day. We are a people of resurrection. We have a resurrection power. And so I pray, as you pray about next week and Easter Sunday, I pray you're inviting people. I pray that, that the empty seat next to you will symbolize a person, a story, a life that could be impacted because of you. And I pray that as you come, uh, you'll be ready to welcome. Let's be people of welcome uh, throughout this week and uh, next Sunday specifically. Lord, we leave this place challenged. Challenged that the leader, the leader is not the one uh, in positional authority often. It's not about status. It's about service. And that's what you've called us to be. Not people of status. Not people of... Uh, that we would be the spotlight and we would be the ones taking charge. Sometimes you call us to that, but this week, Lord, you're calling us to be the servant, even as you said, the servant of all. 
So, Lord, I pray that that would mark our week, that that would direct our steps. And as we gather together this Friday for a Good Friday service on Saturday with children and families and back together next Sunday, Lord, we can't wait to celebrate our risen Lord. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. Amen. You're dismissed. Thanks for being here today. Thank you again so much for listening today. Email us at info at for any questions about our church. We have two gatherings every Sunday morning at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. and a third gathering at 11.45 in Spanish. We're at 1871 Boyers Road in Rockingham, Virginia, and we would love for you to join us. As soon as you're finished listening today, please subscribe to this channel for updates and new episodes.